It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have good news to report this morning. The Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals has implemented the settlement contract facilitation process. Reporting our lead story this morning is Aaron Diesel Rumaya. Have you heard about the CMS Impact Act? Well, you will shortly. Author, educator, consultant Dwayne Abbey is standing by with our special assignment report. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. And Monitor Monday national correspondent J. Paul Spencer checks in with his Medicare Advantage report. But we begin this morning with Dr. Chris Hallman. He is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by Rack University. Here now making the Monday rounds is Dr. Christopher Holloman. I wanted to take today's opportunity to discuss how to support and educate your clinical providers when performing their peer-to-peers. At Brundage Group, we have the opportunity to work with a number of facilities on status assignment. Typically, if we receive a denial on our recommended status, we'll have the opportunity to perform a peer-to-peer. In some cases, insurers mandate the attending physician's participation. This, of course, has brought about a new challenge, how to coach a physician for a peer-to-peer. The ideal coaching and education for our physicians would provide succinct statements that were able to be adequately conveyed medical necessity while avoiding information overload. We didn't want to feel as though we were giving them extra work or wasting their valuable time. We strive to hit the meaningful points to empower our physicians and give them the best opportunity of a favorable outcome. I have a quick example of one of our recent peer-to-peers where we were able to do some coaching. The patient was a 50-year-old male with a history of pancreatitis presenting with abdominal pain. Documentation supported acute on chronic pancreatitis. The patient required IV fluids, significant analgesia with IV medications, addition to a number of other medications intravenously for blood pressure control and symptomatic relief. We went ahead and broke down each day of the patient's stay and highlighted salient points so the attending physician could easily prevent, present facts during the peer-to-peer. In this case, the highlight of the patient's care was the extensive use of multiple IV medications, including dilaudid, Zofran, and IV fluids, compounded with his inability to tolerate any diet for two days with NPO status and limited intake thereafter. We had excellent feedback from the attending physician as we simplified his preparation, saved him the time of reviewing the chart, and supplied him with relevant medical necessity information. We achieved a favorable outcome as the denial was overturned and all days were approved inpatient. It's worth mentioning the other goal on a case like this is to not only provide a clear picture of medical necessity and coach our physicians, but to also be complete and review the entire stay. We weren't looking for just a two or three day inpatient stay. We felt the entire five days warranted inpatient and after the peer to peer, the insurer agreed. The Brundage Group checklist for coaching peer-to-peers is as follows. Always ask the insurer what information they've received and the cause for denial. Often, they may lack simple clinical information, and just filling in the gaps would be enough for a reversal. Next, provide a concise, clear picture of the clinical scenario. Highlight the important points which best illustrate medical necessity for inpatient status. 
Avoiding information overload is also important. Coach how to rebut an insurer's cause for denial. For example, the patient was only admitted for so long, therefore this is an observation case. And the answer to that is timing is not the basis of appropriate status assignments. Medical necessity is. The obvious exclusion being Medicare. At Brunner's Group, our primary goal is to educate physicians to understand and optimize both medical necessity and documentation. Doing this appropriately on the front end will certainly avoid unnecessary denials and subsequent peer-to-peers. But in the event of a denial where the insurer requires the attending physician to perform the peer-to-peer, coaching does appear to be a viable option. It's also created a new educational opportunity for providers and has empowered our physician, created positive experiences, and also increased the chances of overturning that next peer-to-peer that much more. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Holloman. That was the physician advisor of the Brundage Group, Dr. Christopher Holloman. He was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Dr. Holloman was substituting for Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who was on assignment. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Becker. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And a special shout-out to my rehab colleagues in California who always seem to be tuning in bright and early out there to Monitor Monday, Mitch Kay in Southern California and Laura Riddell in Central California. My update today is on Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. The therapy caps have been permanently eliminated. And for 2018... The 2010 therapy cap amount for physical and speech-language pathology and a separate 2010 therapy cap for OT were erased, and the $3,700 manual medical review therapy threshold was reduced to $3,000. That was all done in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018. However, in a bit of serendipity, the 2010 amount remains in the universe. In exchange for permanent elimination of the therapy cap, the legislation identified the cap level of 2010 as a threshold level beyond which an attestation of medical necessity is required, meaning the KX modifier continues to need to be appended to the claims over 2010. Then we had the pay-fors in the legislation. In a surprise move, translate that to blindsided, the legislation required a payment differential of 15% of the fee schedule amount for therapy provided by PTAs and CODAS, that's physical therapist assistance and occupational therapy assistance. So the reduction in payments slated to begin in 2022 will be offset by expected overages due to the permanent elimination of the therapy cap. So by 2019, that's just six short months away, a modifier will be identified to be used on the claims submitted for therapy services completed in whole or in part by PTAs and CODAS. Tune in to my Monitor Monday Rack Monitor article, which will be going out this Thursday to hear the rest of the story. But once again, the therapy cap was eliminated. Ding dong, the witch is dead. This morning on a poll, this is in favor of the summer solstice, which was last week, June 21st. So we're going to take a peek at summer and what are you going to be humming away with? Sometimes we need a poll just for fun, right, Chuck? So check number one, Summer Rain by Johnny Rivers. Number two, Summer in the City by The Lovin' Spoonful. Number three, those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer with Nat King Cole. Or Summertime Blues, Eddie Cochran. Or Summer Nights with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. 
and other. Let us know in the chat box. And I can't believe I did this with J. Paul Spencer on the program today, given he knows all the tunes forever. All righty, Chef, we'll be back to see what our listeners are humming now that we've passed the summer solstice. Very good, Nancy. Thank you very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. Nancy said we're going to have the results of this very important <laughs> Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up in about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Dwayne Abbey, Aaron Diesel Ramaya, David Glazer, and J. Paul Spencer. This is Monday, it's June 25th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Plan now to join your peers in Miami, Florida, September 22nd and 23rd at the annual Clinical Coding Meeting. This perfect mix of business and pleasure will cover topics such as outpatient and physician coding, inpatient coding, CDI, revenue cycle, compliance, auditing, and industry hot topics. Don't miss this great opportunity for learning through educational presentations and peer-to-peer collaboration and discussions. All full advanced online registrations receive a free 2019 AHIMA edition codebook, and they're pleased to offer CNEs again this year. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. We're back. Just a program note. Be sure to register 10 of very important webcasts on how to avoid take-backs and fines with a risk-based auditing plan. You're going to be able to listen to this webcast. It's coming your way this Thursday, and it features our friend Frank Cohen. Now let's check in with health care attorney David Glazer, who is reporting on some risky business. David, what could be risky today? Good morning, Chuck. So my topic this week is going to initially seem touchy-feely, but I think it's actually quite substantive. I want to talk about how emotion can be the enemy of an effective compliance process. Or really, more accurately, since I'm not talking about being happy or sad, I'm really talking about the fear of people expressing their opinions. So many topics inspire strong reactions. And whether the discussion is a work-related topic, like choosing the proper code, or determining whether you're going to go back four years or six years when refunding a Medicare overpayment, I think the answer is four, um, or talking about people's personal lives, um, like politics and relationships, disagreement is inevitable. How people handle that disagreement has a huge impact on how your plan functions. So right now, examples of polite methods for handling disputes are few and far between. On cable news, people yell at each other. In restaurants and bakeries, people refuse to serve one another. Breakdowns like that will cripple your compliance plan. Now, one strategy to deal with this problem is to try to limit conversation about controversial topics. I'm going to offer a theory with which many an HR professional will disagree. I would argue that rather than trying to sanitize your workplace of all controversial topics, the best compliance program will focus on how to conduct the debate civilly without limiting what the debate is about. A solid compliance program must encourage free-flowing discussion and tolerance of dissent and unusual views. How a compliance team handles disagreement will often mean the difference between whether people feel comfortable identifying issues internally or become whistleblowers. The ability to have a calm, rational discussion is important, and if you come to fisticuffs over the Viking-Packer game, you're not going to be able to critically analyze legal issues. Obviously, alleging a mistake in the organization is scary, and in order for people to feel comfortable raising those issues, they have to know they won't be snapped at or judged for asking the question. 
Now, I'll readily concede that you can set a policy of openly accepting all compliance queries without um, openly permitting discussion about every topic. But culture runs deep. And if you want people to feel comfortable raising difficult issues, the easiest way to do this is to allow people to feel comfortable raising literally any issue. Instead of focusing on what topics are on or off limits, I recommend focusing on how the debate occurs. When people have facts on their side, there's no need to use threats or raise your voice. To create a culture where you can fully explore different interpretations of the facts or the law, you want to make it clear people can disagree as long as they're respectful. A great start is to encourage people to lead with, I see it differently, instead of, you're wrong. Now, I have to admit, this is advice I should take to heart when chastising our children about not loading the dishwasher. Um, I'll also have to take it to heart when I talk to Nancy after this call about why there were no 80s songs in the poll. Seriously. Um, but I'm wrong when I, go, when I go out of control here, right? At work, I try to live by the principle that one can disagree without being disagreeable. Politics today are increasingly divided into camps, where uttering a view held by the other camp is treated as heresy. But compliance requires people to be able to think independently and to disagree. If we stifle discussion, compliance and civility will both suffer. So the song for this week will focus on being logical and rational. Nope, not going with Supertramp, the illogical song, but rather with Tapau, named after a Vulcan character. And the Trekkies on the broadcast will know that Vulcans are logical and not emotional. So even if the song is a little bit about heart and soul, let's keep it all rational. Back to you, Chuck, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> very good, David. Thank you very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredericton Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And now with the latest news on a developing story coming out of Texas, here is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, long-time listeners of Monitor Monday will remember me speaking about this particular case in the past. The Texas Supreme Court on Friday ruled that Xerox was ultimately responsible for over a billion dollars in fraudulent Medicare payments the company made when they were overseeing the pre-authorization process for Texas Medicaid's dental patients. Now, this uh, goes back to services that uh, date from 2011 to 2013, where the state paid $527 million uh, to uh, Xerox and by extension, uh, a company called uh, Healthcare Partnership, who uh, was employed by Xerox and was uh, processing dental claims for the state of Texas. Now, what we have going forward is we had a lot of lawsuits going back and forth. First, Xerox blamed dentists for saying, well, how dare you hoodwink us uh, by uh, putting forward these pre-authorizations uh, without additional information that we then put forward and then benefits were paid out. Well, uh, by extension, while Texas did blame some of the dentists for putting these pre-authorizations through, they also decided to sue Xerox. At, uh, they, and they began this lawsuit in May of 2014 over the overpayments 
and then sued them again three months later for withholding client records related to it. So apparently, after many years of uh, litigation, the state of Texas Supreme Court has now decided that Xerox was ultimately responsible. Now, Z the Xerox officials have not commented on, the whether, on whether they're going to file an appeal in this case, but uh, remember that this was only found based on the fact that there was a past audit that came forward where the state estimated that anywhere from 6.5 to $220.5 million was overpaid uh, and it was then called at that point a massive Medicaid fraud scheme. Uh, while it wasn't, but what came out in court hearings during the Supreme Court case was that Xerox had employed uh, claims adjusters and people who were putting forward these pre-authorizations for orthodontic treatment and other high-level dental services who were not experienced enough to know that these services were not medically necessary and they did not fit the Texas Medicaid roster benefits. It's been a long-standing case that finally had some sort of resolution, but we'll have to stay tuned as to whether Xerox is going to appeal this rather high dollar ruling. Uh, since we're talking about songs, uh, I was one of those people who clicked other in the survey box. Uh, if you'd like to hear something interesting that relates somewhat to summer, May I recommend the song August by Love and what may possibly be the greatest drum part I've ever heard on a rock and roll song ever. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent, J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. Have you heard about the CMS Impact Act? Well, now you're going to. Author, educator, Colonel Dwayne Abbey joins us now with our special assignment report. Good morning, Dwayne. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about impact. Uh, it's uh, one of the alphabet soup uh, that uh, stands for Improving Medicare Post-Acute Care Transformation legislation from 2014, and it's going to take probably a decade uh, to uh, fully implement, uh, if that ever really occurs, uh, but it's going to take some time. Now, on June 21st, and that date should stick in everyone's minds, that is the summer solstice, uh, there was a frequently asked question uh, presentation by CMS, about half of which was a presentation of uh, uh, theoretically new material, uh, then uh, questions and uh, answers. Now, impact, it, it, it's a good thought. It's a, it has a wonderful goal. And what they're trying to do is to make post-acute care more uniform, interoperability between the various types of providers and the uh, four providers that are included, at least up to this point, are home health agencies, inpatient rehab facilities, long-term care hospitals, and skilled nursing facilities. Now, during the presentation, uh, they, CMS, did mention hospice. So apparently, at some point in the future, hospice 
is going to be included. We'll have to wait and see. Now, the folks at CMS are using uh, uh, independent contractors to do much of this work, much of the analysis, et cetera, including uh, RAND and uh, RTI, the Research Triangle Institute, so that in order to keep up with all of this stuff, and I'm going to use that as a technical term, uh, in order to keep up with all of this stuff, you're going to have to look at some of those reports as well. Now, there was a wide-ranging discussion, so it's a little bit hard to amalgamate this uh, into just a few bullet points. But one thing I will point out that uh, CMS indicated that by October 1, there will be a skilled nursing facility compare website. Now, how well this will work, uh, our experience that we've had with uh, other providers in this area has been somewhat mixed. But everyone, please make a note that there will be a compare website for skilled nursing, at least in theory. Now, the big issue is that of standardized patient assessments. Now, each of these four post-acute providers have their own payment systems, and much of this is driven by their patient assessment forms. But those forms, those data, were uh, basically uh, based upon payment systems, so that how they're going to pull all of this together is going to be anybody's uh, well anybody's guess at this point. So please watch the standardized uh, patient assessment process. CMS is indicating that they will expand uh, and modify the current patient assessment forms as opposed to doing a new one. Also, they did put a plug-in for their data element library. Uh, this apparently, uh, since I haven't really looked at it, but uh, this apparently is something relatively new. Uh, IT personnel would be very interested in this. And so keeping up with impact is it's going to be quite a job. Let's just put it that way, everyone. All right, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dwayne, very much. That was author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Dwayne is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consultants, and you can read his report on the Impact Act. This Thursday in the Rack Monitor E-News. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, we have some good news to report this morning. The Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals has now implemented the long-awaited consultation settlement process. Reporting our lead story this morning is Aaron Diesel-Ramaya. Good morning, Aaron. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Chuck. Yes, this is exciting news announced by OMHA on Friday, June 15th. SCF is an alternative resolution process through which Medicare appellants can negotiate a lump sum settlement with CMS on their eligible appeals. It is a one-day mediation, and an OMHA facilitator will act as a neutral party between the appellant and CMS. CMS has significantly modified the eligibility criteria for both appellants and appeals since this program was first announced back in November. Eligible appellants are Medicare Part A or Part B, providers or suppliers, that have not filed for bankruptcy or expect to file for bankruptcy and do not have past or current program integrity concerns. Also, eligible appellants have the requisite number of eligible appeals. 
So they have either 25 or more eligible appeals pending at OMHA or the council levels combined, or they have less than 25 eligible appeals at these levels combined if at least one appeal has more than $9,000 in bill charges. This is very broad eligibility criteria, and we would expect that most Part A or Part B appellants do fit this criteria. A full eligibility criteria for appeals are listed on OMHA's website, and we encourage today's listeners to check the website. Some of the key criteria are that the appeals involve requests for ALJ hearing or council review that were filed on or before November 3rd of 2017. The appeal cannot be scheduled for an ALJ hearing, and an ALJ hearing cannot have been conducted. Also, the build amount of each individual claim or an extrapolated overpayment demand needs to be $1 million or less. Under the expanded SCF program, there is a two-track process. So appellants that have appealed claims or extrapolated overpayments of $100,000 or less are eligible for the express settlement offer. Under the express track, appellants receive a non-negotiable settlement offer from CMS and have seven days to accept or reject the offer. If they reject the offer, they will proceed to the normal settlement conference process, and if they accept the offer, a settlement agreement will be signed and the process will be completed. We do have some main points for appellants to keep in mind. The program is currently open for participation, and although there's no end date to the program, it is wise to participate sooner rather than later to ensure an earlier resolution to the appeals. Also, the process does move quickly, and there are strict deadlines in the process. If you don't comply with those deadlines, you could get kicked out, and all deadlines are listed on CMS's website. We have some recommended best practices for participation in the SCF program. Um, appellants should understand that there are no findings of fact or law during SCF, such as what would occur at an ALJ hearing. However, an appellant can and should present their main ideas and overall considerations, such as who they are as a provider or a supplier, and the strength of their claims generally to persuade CMS towards a more favorable resolution on the eligible appeals. Sample claims will be identified during a pre-settlement conference, and appellants should work up these claims comprehensively, do a clinical review, cite to any authorities like an NCD, LCDs, or manuals, and also prepare a position paper with documentary evidence and testimonial support. This workup should be submitted before the conference for CMS's consideration, and although there are no findings of fact or law in SCF, a strong posturing of the case at the outset can have a substantial impact on the success at the conference. Some other take-home points, this process is fully voluntary and we see no real downside to participating. So if settlement isn't reached, the appellant doesn't forfeit their place in line for an ALJ hearing. Um, also, resolution through SCF, it promotes time and cost savings as opposed to proceeding to an ALJ hearing on a claim-by-claim -claim basis. And so we do encourage eligible providers to consider participating in this program. Thank you, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, Erin. That was healthcare attorney Erin Diesel-Ramaya, and she is with Walker & Associates. She was reporting on the recent settlement facilitation process that's just been implemented by the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. Now's the time for the results of our Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, Nancy Beckley. Chuck, what a blast. What a blast. And did I know that David Glazer was going to ding me on the 80s? I knew that when I did the poll. Why wasn't I thinking? So let's take a look at what I came up with and how our listeners uh, responded. 6% of our listeners this morning would, are going to be Hum and Summerine by Johnny Rivers. 
19% summer in the city with the love and spoonful, 21% with those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer, Nat King Cole, and 4% with summertime blues, 41% they're thinking of Greece, Summer Nights, John Travolta, and Olivia Newton-John. We got a lot of others. David, I think you have a quick question for one of our speakers, and if we've got time, we'll come back to some of what of our other summertime songs are. You bet. Actually, Aaron, I've got two quick questions for you. So first, you know, you, you can't participate in the program if you have integrity issues. Do we know whether if you are a defendant in an unrelated False Claims Act case, as so many places are, does that preclude you from participating in the program? David, that is an excellent question. We do not know for certain. However, the eligibility criteria are very broadly written, and so it may. Okay, but the bottom line is you, you may as well try, right, I guess is where that would leave you? Absolutely. There's no downside in participating. Um, we actually have represented some clients in the past that um, did seek participation in the program, and then ultimately CMS did not accept participation. So the worst that would happen is CMS simply declines to participate. Second question from a listener is, is this settlement only for medical necessity, or is it also for coding and DRG disagreements? It is open to medical necessity issues as well as DRG downcoding issues, but if it's related to a payment discrepancy, um, such as you know, a, a MAC is trying to effectuate payment um, according to a payment schedule and the provider simply disagrees with what that payment amount is, those claims are not eligible for resolution through this program. Thank you so much, Erin. And I would note, too, uh, obviously, if it's in the QIO type things aren't allowed in there either. And so I can't tell if the questioner was thinking about like a QIO review. But uh, Chuck, I think that's what we've got time for. I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much, uh, David. And thank you, Erin, for uh, explaining more about the settlement consultation process that has recently been implemented. That is going to be a wrap for us. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dwayne Abbey, Nancy Beckley, Aaron DeSormaya, whom you just heard, David Glazer, of course, Jake Paul Spencer. Uh, I hope to see you back here this coming Thursday. That's at 1.30 p.m. when you're going to learn how to avoid take-backs and fines by uh, Frank Cohen. And a program note, next Monday, we're not going to be here. Uh, we are going to be returning on July 9th in observance of the 4th of July. In the meantime, you can listen to today's live broadcast on demand anytime, anywhere. It's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. I've mentioned just a few. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.